0: As Jake mentioned, we have these devotional guides that we uh, handed out last week. They follow our series this fall. And, you know, we've been working on this for quite a while, since the beginning of the summer. We've been chewing on it. And really the last six weeks, um, since August 1st, has been um, almost every day working on the content. It's kind of, it turns out to be hard to do 11 weeks of sermon prep before you... You do the sermons every week, so we, uh, it, it took a lot of effort to get all the big ideas and the scripture reading and the prayers and all that in here. I want to encourage you, there's some on the back if you didn't get one. It's also on our website. If you go to our homepage, you can download it for free. Um, but last Friday, not a couple of days ago, a week ago Friday, I had this crazy experience of, you know, we're doing all of this um, work on working and resting and the rhythm between work and rest and spending 11 weeks talking about. Um, finding the work God's called you to, but also learning how to Sabbath and rest and be in that rhythm. Um, And we got to about Friday at three, and we're printing these off, and I'm about to head out the door. I've got my backpack on, and I wanted to know uh, how much paper we use, because we have have special paper for this. Like, we don't just use regular paper. For those of you who've not been picking them up, you won't know this, but... um, (laughs) Like we buy special paper and we like hide it so no one uses it because I want this to feel really good. And um, I want, we only had two reams left. We had a 500 and 500 had a 1,000 pieces of paper and I was afraid we might run out because I, there's no way we're gonna do this on regular paper. Like that'd be awful. So we, uh, I wanted to see how much we had had. And so we printed 100 of these, okay? And I'm so tired at the end of the day and I wanted to figure, okay, how, so, I pulled this and I, I counted, I was like, oh, there's seven, seven pieces of paper. And then I proceeded to um, pull out my phone and open the calculator, and I did um, 100 oh, no. <laughs> times and it was like, Jake said seven pages, and I was like, times seven, and it wasn't until after I hit the equals button <laughs> that I realized what you've already realized. <laughs> which is a 35-year-old should be able to do seven (laughs) times 100 in his head. Jake thought I was kidding. (laughs) He thought I was joking, and I'm sitting here holding this thinking, I'm that tired that I can't can't do math anyway, but I I should be able to do seven times 100. And uh, it was this sign of, yeah, okay, it's Friday. It's at the end of Friday. Just go home. And and so I I was going home, and um, some friends had recently heard, hey, it's uh, your anniversary, Shari and I's anniversary. And so they said, hey, we've got this log cabin out two hours away. We'd love for you to come and stay there. And it was great. So that's why I was leaving a little bit early on Friday and we rushed home and uh, babysitters came over. We got all our bags and um, we were so dead set on getting out of San Antonio before rush hour, which um, we still left at like four o'clock, but have you ever driven through Leon Springs at four o'clock? It is the, it's awful. And, and, and uh, so we're trying to get, I'm just like, I'm trying to get to the hill country. Like I can't even do math. I just need to get to the hill country. And so we, we fight our way out of traffic and we get onto the, the country road and there's nobody and Shari falls asleep. And I'm listening to a podcast and we're driving and we finally get to the log cabin It's kind of hot, but then we just we get to the log cabin, and there's green grass all around it, and it's beautiful. It was a legit log cabin. I thought they were kidding when they said log cabin. It was like a a real log cabin in the hill country. We pull up, and I put I turn the car off and look at it, and both Shari and I just feel this amazing amount of peace that comes over us by being, which happens when you go to the hill country in a log cabin. And then I saw the front door to the log cabin, and horror replaced all the peace in my heart because I remembered that that front door is locked. And the keys that they gave me to unlock that front door were sitting on my kitchen counter two hours away. So this whole thing about work and rest and we're not machines and we should pay attention to how hard we're working is a legit thing. I hope you'll join us as we jump on the survey. Thank God for hidden lock boxes at the walk cabin we got in as I was not driving back. I was going to break a window if I had to. We all have a challenging relationship with work. Some of you um, are, are just white knuckling your job. You're there and it's not fulfilling. And you might not even know why you're at that job, probably because it's a paycheck, or probably because your parents said you should have this type of job. or um, some of you, when we talk about work, there's like a lot of stress and anxiety that, that comes because work for you is not a fulfilling, delightful experience. Some of you love your job, and you actually love your work, and you have the opposite problem. You don't know when to say stop. You know, you don't know when to put the work away and when to rest, and so you have the opposite problem. Some of you, you might just be doing all right, um, but Sabbath is not this thing that, um, that captures your attention, Uh, Keeping the Sabbath holy every seven days might not be a spiritual discipline. You've learned how to do, or if you do it, you do it reluctantly because you think Sabbath equals boredom. Um, And so our hope is that all of us, whether you're in the retirement season, which is an interesting idea we'll talk about in the coming weeks, or if you're in the college season and you're kind of trying to figure out what you want to give your life to, my hope is that this fall, as we spend 10 more weeks on this, that uh, you'll be open to what God has for you. Um, A.W. Tozer, this is probably the most well-known quote that he has. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't know if you've come across that. But what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has thoughts about God. Whether you're a believer or an atheist, you got a thought about God. Whether it's a positive thought or a negative thought or a apathetic, neutral, I don't care thought, We all have a thought, and it affects you. Our theology, our thinking about God affects everything. We often think about how God is loving and holy and big and powerful and omniscient and omnipresent, and he's kind and God's merciful and God is gracious. But have you ever thought about how God is a worker? you ever thought about how God works? He labors. In fact, it's the first thing we learn about God. The first thing, before we learn about how holy he is, we learn that he's a worker. that's the title of today's message, The First Thing We Learn About God. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, so if you have a Bible or you want to borrow the black Bible around you, you can go to Genesis chapter 1, which is, I think, page 1. Should be pretty easy to find. Or if you want to pull it up on your scripture. I'm going to read the whole chapter Thirty-something verse. Actually, we're going to go right into Genesis two a little bit, and um, I want you to be able to either follow along, um, or if it would help you to to, to listen, you can listen. But um, there is some really good stuff here in Genesis one that that a lot of people miss. What I want you to to either listen for or read for when we're reading is um, I want you to notice the rhythm. Okay, there's a rhythm that is sort of present in English, but it is really there in the Hebrew. I want you to look for um, the the concept of image, and then I want you to look for the concept of, um, I want you to see how God works. This is the first thing we learn about God, right? So, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God, five words in, he's working, he's creating, he's doing something right? So just let that hit. Five words into the scriptures, we learn God works. And if you hate working, you have to wrestle with this. Because five words in, we see in the beginning, there was work. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The earth brought forth vegetations, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Are you seeing the rhythm? All right. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons After our likeness, the rhythm changes here. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Biblical beginnings of being a vegetarian. You'll get it later. And And to every beast of the earth, And to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. There's that refrain again. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in his creation. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. So um, let me just say this. I believe God is the creator of all things. It's what the scriptures teach. It's what Genesis teaches. It's what uh, Psalms teaches. It's what Job teaches when he tells Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? It's what um, Jesus would echo. It's what the New Testament teaches. The scriptures teach that life is not the product of an accidental explosion, and that this is like some molecular um, thing that just happened. That's not what the scriptures teach. However... I don't think that Genesis one had, was intended to be a lab report to tell us on how creation came about. For example, um, I think plants are made on day three but the sun's made on day four. Or some, or, but we know that there's this thing called photosynthesis and so you'd have to, well, how does that work? Right, it's, and what, we, what you would know if you, I don't know Hebrew, but all the Hebrew scholars that I know and read and have listened to is that they all say, this is poetry. Genesis 1 is poetry, it's art. But sometimes um, we get kinda caught in the weeds of creation on this, as if Moses were teaching the Hebrew people um, about creation so that one day when they're in high school and their science teacher tells them about Darwin and Finches, they'd have some ammo. But that wasn't, and I don't think is, the intent that Moses had when teaching the Israelites. Now, I believe God's the creator, right? However, we've taken the message of Genesis 1, which is incredible, and we've kind of shrunk it down to creation versus evolution. There's a much bigger message that we, that we miss. You have to know um, the context that, that Moses is teaching in here. In fact, um, you have to know the Exodus, the story of the Hebrew people, God's people who were in slavery to Egypt for 400 years, one of the great takeaways of Exodus is that God is the first abolitionist. Sometimes people who don't know their Bible very well will say things like, "Well, in the South, um, you know, people in the South used the Bible to uh, to set up slavery, and um, they did do that, but they were idiots. They didn't know what the Bible like the whole The whole message of the Bible, when it includes slavery, it's this, slavery in the Bible is this entire metaphor for our relationship to sin." It's a negative thing. Uh, there's a book in the New Testament called Philemon, if you've ever read it, and it's Paul's pleading to uh, Philemon to let his slave go, Onesimus, who escaped Philemon and then ended up getting saved and, and became one of Paul's disciples. And Paul, there, there's a New Testament letter trying to uh, tell a believing slave owner to let go of his slave. Uh, the whole point of Exodus is that God's not cool with people owning people. And, and actually, the ten plagues are how God feels about slavery. So, you know, this whole but the first like, five, six books of the Bible are about God setting these slaves free. Right, so you can't say that the Bible teaches and advocates for slavery because that's, that's not the message of the Bible. In fact, even Joshua, the book of Joshua is, will these former slaves get their land? It's kind of the thrust of Joshua, right? So Moses, post-Exodus, um, you know, is on the other side of the river with all of these Hebrews, God's people, who have been slaves for 400 years, all they know is is make bricks for Pharaoh. And their identity is built up in how many bricks they can produce. And they work seven days a week from sun up to sundown, no break. And if they don't match the quota, they die. And Moses is tasked with teaching these people on how to be human again. Because all they have known and all their families have known and all their generations have known is how to be slaves or how to be machines. And so he begins with a poem about how the God who set them free, who's different than the gods that Egypt worshipped, this God that came and parted the seas and overcame Pharaoh and Egypt to set them free, now they're kind of interested in who this God is. And so he begins with this poetry about a God who works and a God who rests. That's not what I would have done. If I had 400, if I had, you know a million or two former slaves for 400 years, I'd open with in the beginning God took this really great vacation and he knows how to rest and you're going to love him because that's what you want. But it's so fascinating that knowing the context of how Genesis 1 was given on Mount Sinai, the fifth word in to the poetry is that God works. Because probably they're on this other pendulum swing of like all we've known is work, so work must be bad. And he begins with telling about this holy God who's powerful, who, who's, who created everything, and how there's this rhythm of work and rest. Uh, he, if you know that, then the Ten Commandments are different. A lot of people view the Ten Commandments as this boring religious list of things you can't do, but if you're a slave and all you've known is being a machine, the Ten Commandments are a gift because they're instructions on how to be human Right, so when Moses says, hey, don't cheat on your spouse, he's just like, that's, that's huma- decent humanity 101. When he says, don't kill one another, that's just decent humanity 101, right? Um, and so it'd be interesting, if you have this like, bad view of the Ten Commandments, maybe reread them and think of it through that lens of if you were a slave and all you knew was work, 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 how would you read the Ten Commandments differently? He also begins with a creation story. Now, every culture has a creation story that's not unique to Christians. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I went to public school and the Christian creation story was always attacked, but they never attacked any of the other ones. And uh, it's very fascinating how, how Moses, teaching them about work, starts with this creation story. In Egypt, the creation narrative was that um, there was this goose that laid an egg and the egg was the sun and from the sun came all these other eggs, which was the earth and the creation. And so this is actually um, kind of a hieroglyphic from that. You're gonna see the, um, the egg up there and the egg coming down the sun and, and how people's work is a, is, revolves around this egg. And that was the narrative that the Hebrew people would have known, was this all got started because a goose laid an egg In ancient Babylon, there's an even better story. Uh, There's a story of a massive war between Marduk and Tiamat. And uh, Marduk won and created the heavens and the earth from the remains of Tiamat. And so to those in Babylon, our existence was the result of war and hatred and strife and division. How would that affect your life if you believed that you're here on this earth as a byproduct of war? or as a byproduct of a goose laying an egg, the size of the sun. In Greek mythology, there's a lot of different various um, creation stories. The two that amuse me the most are, the the popular one is that the gods uh, created humanity as an interesting way to entertain them and amuse them. So the idea is that Zeus uh, kind of uh, said, hey, Let's do this experiment and let's have humans and let's give them certain gifts and then Prometheus gave them fire, which made Zeus mad, which made, you know, that whole story. Um, but the whole point was reality TV for the gods. Totally, that's what it was. It was, let's create humans and let's see kind of what kind of fun stuff they do. Other Greek narratives say that humans were created to do all the work that the gods were tired of doing. And so that creation narrative had this view of that the Greek gods retired from work and now the humans are their slaves to keep the world going. So to those in Greece, your existence was either because Zeus wanted reality TV or Zeus retired and you had to succeed him. But the biblical narrative of where things begin is very different. Uh, D.H. Jensen says this, biblical narratives overflow with work Beginning uh, Between the opening lines of Genesis to the closing chapter of Revelation, God labors, which is different than all the other creation stories. One of the most distinguishing characteristics of biblical faith is that God does not sit enthroned in heaven, removed from work, willing things into existence by divine fiat. Unlike the gods of the Greco-Roman mythologies who absolve themselves of work, the biblical God works. Tim Keller says that creation then is not the aftermath of a battle, but the plan of a craftsman. God made the world not as a warrior who digs a trench, but as an artist who makes a masterpiece. If you were a Hebrew who lived like a slave and like a machine, how would your life change if post-slavery you learned that the work isn't inherently bad? And that the God who set you free also works and rests. How would that change your life if you were a Hebrew slave? If you are a post-modern Western American who was living like a slave and operating like a machine, how would your life change today if you learned that the work you do isn't necessarily inherently bad and that the God who set you free and that loves you also works and rests? It's the first thing we learn about God. He works. It's easy to believe that work is a curse or at least a necessary evil to life. Many people think that work is the result of the fall, but it's not so. Work existed before the fall in Genesis 3. Ben Witherington said, On closer inspection, it is perfectly clear that God's good plan always included human beings working, or more specifically, living in the constant cycle of work and rest. Barbara Brown Taylor said, Many readers of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 have somehow gotten the idea that physical labor is part of God's curse. Clearly, this is not so. The earthling's first divine job is to till the earth and keep it. The first thing we learn about God is that he works. It goes beyond Genesis, by the way. If you look throughout the Scriptures, um, we see that God has a lot of different job titles and, and even metaphors. Even how people relate to God, they have to use um, working job descriptions. We often think of God as Savior and Lord and King, but we must not forget some of the other metaphors. God's a potter. He's a metal worker. He's a garment maker, a dresser. He's a gardener, an ecologist, a farmer, a winemaker a shepherd, a pastor, a physician, a tent maker, a builder, an architect. He's a musician and a composer. Those are all the, just some of the metaphors attributed to God throughout all the scriptures. God is love, God is hope. God is peace, God is savior, Jesus is Lord, absolutely. He's also a worker. And how you think about God and his work directly affects your life and your view towards your work. They're not inseparable. This theme pops out when you read all the scripture. Here's a few samples. One of my favorites, Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Some people think that God's retired and he's just kind of watching things and he's like this uh, clockmaker who set everything up and then stepped back, but that's not the picture that Psalms 37 says. I love this one. It says, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by their hand. I love this message from Psalm 37, that God delights in the detail of your life, which means that right now God is working. He's working, he's delighting in working the details of your life right now. Um, As an example, it's not really your idea that you came to church in a crusty warehouse. God was working on bringing you here this morning. I believe that. You may think I'm crazy, but like, you didn't just, I don't have a life. I should go to a weird warehouse where there's a small church. No, you're here because God is working in your life, and he's wanting to do this. Maybe he was working through worship, or working through confession, or maybe he's working right now, and he's stirring some things in your heart. Maybe he'll work at the table and we celebrate communion. Maybe he'll work afterwards when you meet a new friend and you're lonely. God's at work all the time. He's not retired. This is the message of Psalms 37. He delights in the details of our lives. Psalms 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Psalms 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Even Hebrews 12 says, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter. Other translations, he's the author and the perfecter. So I hope you, I'm belaboring the point a little bit, but that from the beginning to the end of the scriptures, God is presented as a worker. Now there's this great message. I think it's the, the coolest message, because I've only ever heard one person talk about this. At the very end of Genesis 1, I don't know if you caught it, but there's this, uh, this, uh, there's this language about, and in the image of God, he created man and woman, which we know that all of creation kind of speaks to us about how God is, but it doesn't say that he made the mountains in the image of God. It says that he made us, men and women, in the image, and there's this there's this language that we miss because we live in the digital world where I think of image, I'm a, I was a graphic designer earlier in my life, so I think of Photoshop. When I see the word image, I think of Photoshop or a printer. That's not the imagery that would come to mind to the Hebrew people. Then there's this be fruitful and fill the earth and then have dominion. Does, does, any, like, does anyone feel uncomfortable with that word, a dominion? Like, like we have this... Um, But there's this call to go and be responsible and exercise leadership and have dominion over all of creation. That's at the very end of this, Pharaoh would set up images of himself throughout Egypt as a way to say in this place, Pharaoh has dominion. There's this great, um, uh, show the one in the mud because it shows the scale. Uh, I think several years ago, they found this, statue of Pharaoh. Look at the scale of this thing. It was huge. And then they restored it, which is the next image. That's the same image, statue, idol that was recovered several years ago in the mud. And it's huge. Now it's on display in a museum. And Pharaoh would build these images, these idols, these statues in his image, put them everywhere as a giant sign to say, in this place, Pharaoh's in charge. In this place, the way of Egypt is the way that rules. And the Egyptians would have known this language. Here's some modern day example. Here's a playful example uh, for you basketball fans. Outside of Staples Center, there is an image, a statue, an idol of Magic Johnson doing his work to remind people of the good Showtime glory days. And it's giant, it's, it's way bigger than in proportion. A serious example: Saddam Hussein did the same thing. He would set up massive statues of him around. uh, Was it Saudi Arabia? There, where was? And they were always. Was it Saudi? Iraq? I don't know. Sorry. What's seven times one hundred? I don't know. Iraq, whatever. I never took geography in class. I was always in the math class, trying to get it. So. But what's great about this—this is what I do know about the statues—is they were uh, they were his image, like 30 years younger. So it was like when him in the prime of his life, they were giant. And then what happens whenever he's no longer in dominion or in control? They tear the image or the statue down to say, "No longer the Saddam Hussein have rule in this place." We're taking the image down. So if you're a Hebrew slave and you've been under that tyranny, for 400 years, and then your pastor comes and says, in the beginning, God worked, and at the very end, he even created you in his image, and he's told you to be fruitful and multiply, and to have dominion, you would have heard the the message, you are God's idol. The reason why in the 10 Commandments, it's a sin to have idols Is not, the sin is not that you're singing to a fake cow. That's not the sin. The sin is that you have rejected being God's idol, being his image throughout the world to say the kingdom of heaven is here. And when you reject that and you make an idol or a statue and you are, you, what the sin is, is that you're rejecting the work God's called you to, to do and be, which is to be his image bearer everywhere that there's earth. When you reject that and you go and sing silly songs to a calf, that's the sin, is the rejection. But the Hebrew people would have heard in Genesis 1, you are God's idols. You are his statue. You're not called to be on an endless vacation. This God who who rescued you from slavery is a God who works. He's a God who rests, but he made you in his image and he's got a job for you. He's work for you. And the sin is rejecting that. Many of us are breaking that commandment not because we have a statue at home that we sing a song to, but many of us are breaking that commandment because we have refused to allow God to do the work in us and through us. God set the Israelites free and he wanted to use them to be agents of freedom throughout all the world and they said we'd rather have a cow. God did incredible work in them, but they did not want God to do work through them. That's the sin. God's doing work in you. But when we choose to take a job because, it, because of the paycheck and not because God called us to do that work or not because God's equipped us to do that work. The question is, do you have an idol? And have you refused to be God's idol and God's statue? Jesus, of course, is the best example of this. He's the best example of what it means to be God's idol, to be God's image, declaring rule and dominion. In John chapter 3, the famous most famous scripture of all time, John three sixteen, right? Before that, Jesus is speaking of this truth. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That's idol language. That's image language. When you see Christ on the cross lifted up, we see the image of God saying the kingdom of heaven is here. The work of God is here. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. The next time you hear someone say, for God so loved the world, you see someone um, in the end zone of a football game with a sign that says John 3.16. Remember, before John 3.16 is this hint of Jesus being the perfect idol and image of God, doing the work that God's called him to do. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Through. And you see the work in that verse. You see the call of Genesis 1 to be made in God's image, to be fruitful and multiply, and to exercise leadership into a hurting and broken world. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross on Golgotha that day, God was setting up his best image, declaring to into a broken world, the kingdom of heaven is here. Come and receive life. The first thing we learn about God is that he works. Father, we love you so much. And we just give you thanks that you are not like Zeus. You are not like Marduk. You're not the the goose laying the egg. Lord, we recall and remember that you have a good plan for us, for this world, and that you've created us in your image to be image bearers, to be representatives, to be statues of sorts. Statues of liberty, true statues of freedom, true statues of love and joy and peace in the way of the kingdom. Lord, I know many of us are not caught up in that work. Lord, for those who are just punching the clock to make a living, God, I pray that you would speak this message to them just as you spoke it to the Hebrews that day. For those who are unemployed and have no sense of what's on the horizon, God, I pray that you would be their provision, be their daily bread. And also, God, that you would lead them into the paths of righteousness, lead them into the good works that you have called for them to already do. Lord, for those who hate their work and are not sure why they're even on this earth, I pray you would begin the process of revealing to them the calling and the vocation that they have in this world. But for those who are just trucking along and and even doing good and feeling content, I pray that you would resurrect a conviction that they are your junior partners and that you've called them to only do the thing that they see you doing. God, we thank you for the blessing that, that godly work brings our life. Even when it wears us out, even when it's tired, even when we can't do math at the end of the week, I thank you for the blessing of a work that's we've been called to, not chosen.